Hi, and welcome to Drinking with Creatives, where we drown journalists of responsibility in a pool of vodka. My name is Jeremy Berger, a filmmaker and senior editor. And each week I chat with a professional creative and we have a few drinks. And you, you've been COVID free? Yeah, I haven't caught it. Um, you know, I, uh, I was actually, before they canceled the in-person part of Sundance, um, I was actively trying to get it because I didn't want to show up there and then test positive and then be quarantined for 10 days and ruin the whole fucking thing. Oh. Uh, so, yeah. So actually like, you know, starting in, I guess like late December, early January, uh, my brother's a, a bartender not far by. So I started going to his, his bar every time he was working, just kind of seeing if maybe I would get it. And, you know, it seemed mild, I'm boosted and everything. So I was like, all right, I'll just get it, get it out of my system. And I wouldn't have to worry about it. But, uh, I never caught it and they canceled, you know, the in-person. So I guess it worked out. So you, you, you were casually trying to just pick up the disease, the, the, the virus that we've all been avoiding, like, the, well, literally, wow, can I even say avoiding like a plague anymore? Especially <laughs> when it actually is a plague. Oh God. I didn't even think about yeah. that. Like, I, so you just casually just tried to just pick that up. I mean, I was just, you know, Omicron seems you know, if you're vaxxed and boosted, not so bad. And I knew a bunch of people who had it and that they were like, it's just kind of like a cold. So I didn't spend, you know, 13 years submitting films to Sundance to uh, get in and then be quarantined. So I was like, I'm, I'm just going to try and get it. So I don't miss out on this opportunity. I gotcha. I gotcha. And I, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, I, I know Sundance did uh, push, uh, uh, push back events in person. Was that a, is that kind of a blow to you? Yeah, it's a, you know, I, I totally get it. I understand why. Uh, but yeah, it's a huge bummer. I mean, you know, like I said, been, I never thought it would it would happen for me. And then it did. And then, you know, I was really excited for it. And then uh, when Slam Dance canceled their in-person and Sundance seemed like they were still committed to going through with in-person, I was like, okay, it's just great. And, you know, I got a place and my parents were going to go out and I had, you know, a lot of people who were excited about it. And then you know, they canceled it. So yeah, it, it was a blow, but everything they're doing right now virtually is actually like pretty awesome. And I'm, I'm making connections, which was the thing I was scared I wasn't going to be able to do without it being in person. Gotcha. 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 Well, I, we jump right into it. We haven't even introduced you, James, please, before <laughs> we actually start moving forward uh, with discussing uh, your films and your work and, uh, of course, drinking. Please tell everybody uh, who you are, what you do, and where we can find you. Uh, I'm James Gannon. Uh, I am a filmmaker in Brooklyn, New York, and you can find my stuff on my website. It's just jamespgannon.com. Uh, it's just a bunch of different short films between, like, narratives and docs and a bunch of stuff shot on Super 8. Rock and roll. Okay, first question. Well, not obviously since we've already jumped in, but uh, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking mezcal. Just oh, straight. yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, you're beginning with mezcal. Damn. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not really like a big beer drinker, so I was gonna drink something hard, and uh, mezcal was just the thing I decided on. Okay, no, no, I I stand in awe of your of your aptitude. Uh, you're. You're a far better alcoholic than I am. Uh, I am starting with the Sierra Nevada. Uh, okay, but then, nice. But then I might move on to rubbing alcohol, depending on what, uh, what my liver <laughs> tells me. So, James, I kind of like want to talk a little about your documentary work because I 
caught originally your work, which was uh, via the Vimeo staff pick that was the Christmas light killer. Right. Uh, but then you sent me all this other work. So I kind of want to get uh, everyone on the same page about uh, Deerwood's death trap and Petty, Fe- Petty feeds the animals, but then talk about Christmas light killer a little bit. First of all, you seem to make a lot of films with your family. Yeah. Uh, I have, you know, I'm one of, I'm one of seven kids. Um, I'm second to last in that, you know, that lineup. And my mom was one of, or my mom is one of eight. So I kind of grew up with like a lot of craziness going on. I didn't know that that was abnormal, but, uh, as I've gotten older and met other people and met other people's families, uh, I realized that my family was kind of crazy. So, uh, there's just like a lot of stories I kind of grew up with or, or these people uh, who are all like kind of big personalities and characters, I guess, because they had to compete in these, you know, large families to stand out. And now that I'm, you know, older, I've sort of been able to observe like the interesting shit about these people. And I just figured I could document it. And it was it was easy. You know, it kind of scratches that creative itch and I don't have to pay them anything. So it's it's a cheap way to make, you know, movies. So, yeah. Yeah. It's very economical in, 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 more, yeah. in, more, in more ways than one. Fantastic. Uh, so, um, because I love Betty Feeds the Animals, I've, I, I saw the screen for uh, Deerwood's Death Trap, which is your film that's premiering at Sundance this year. Yep. Um, but the thing that floored me, I think I said this in the email, because I, I, I contacted you without even knowing this. This is all based off the Christmas Lights Killer, which was shot in HD. But you actually shot... Uh, I mean, Deerwood's Death Trap as well as Betty Feeds the Animals and probably a couple of more. Were there, were there another one or two in there on Super 8? There's like a narrative I did back in like 2009, uh, like a narrative short that uh, like showed at South By and stuff called Cochrane that was shot on Super 8. That was the first time I did anything with Super 8. What drew you to the uh, to the medium? Well, I mean, like back then, uh, there wasn't really like good digital cameras that shot you know, close to like 24 frames. So the cheapest thing that I could do was super eight. Um, you know, I didn't like, I didn't go to film school. I didn't have access to cameras or, or anything like that. So a friend of mine had a super eight camera. He was going to NYU. So he sort of, you know, I worked on some of his films and it was the cheapest thing I could shoot on at the time. And, you know, once I got that footage back, I just sort of like fell in love with that aesthetic. Yeah, it's 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 crazy. I haven't talked to somebody who has shot Super 8 in so many years. I don't even know. Where do you get this processed? There's a bunch of places to do it. Like, you know, like pretty much any any place that like develops uh, like 35 or like 16 and, and transfers that stuff, they all still do Super 8. Like Kodak still has, you know, three or four different stocks for Super 8. Um, so it's still out there. It's actually kind of making a comeback in like like fashion stuff, like commercials and, and stuff on the internet I've seen. Um, but yeah, it's it's out there. I don't really know how many people use it for kind of the stuff that I'm using it for, but I I love it. Like I think it's such a like a cool medium. I don't think it's I don't think it's used for this kind of stuff enough. I feel like everyone just kind of like imagines like the opening of the Wonder Years, and that's like what you would use Super Eight for. But <laughs> I think we use for a lot of different things. Like I would love to shoot a narrative, you know, feature on Super Eight. I think that would be awesome. Incredible. Well, yeah, I could tell you definitely not not many documentary filmmakers use Super Eight at all, just because 
you know, so much of the uh, DSLR revolution or what have you, you know, meant that we could just shoot for hours and hours and hours, which is why it's been such a treat watching your work and seeing somebody doing film documentary, which is kind of what I grew up watching. Right. Um, so, I mean, I, I, at the risk of uh, alienating people with some certain tech talk, I'm curious, like, what is your shooting ratio like? Like how many cart like, cause you're sh- like, you're shooting cartridges of super eight, right? Yeah. So like, you know, a cartridge is, I think it's around like three minutes, but mm-hmm. you know, then there's like stuff in the beginning and the end that you lose. Cause it like burns out or, or whatever. Um, and those three minutes end up costing you like 60 bucks you know, like all in after you get a process buying it. And then, you know, the telecine. Uh, so for Betty feeds the animals, I think I shot somewhere around like 15 rolls of super eight. Um, like I, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do for that movie. And the, the way that I did it is I, I interviewed Betty on digital with, you know, like Mike's going into XLRs and all that. And then based off of that interview, I sort of thought like, okay, I can film this, this, and this with the Super 8 and see how it works. And uh, I was shooting with um, a really low ISO. So it's like 50 ISO. You need like a lot of light. Yeah. And all the stuff indoors with her, like it was just bottoming out on the, the light meter. I had no idea if any, any of it was ever going to come out exposed. Like when I finished filming her for the day, mm-hmm. I was so defeated. I, I was just like, there's no way any of this is going to be exposed. I just wasted all this money. I actually went back the next day and I filmed the whole entire movie over again with digital, just in case none oh, wow. of the film came out. Yeah. And then I sent the film out and I just sort of forgot how like, for, forgiving it can be. And it all came out exposed great. Um, and then once that happened, I was like, okay, I can, I can do this again with Deer Woods. Like I'm, I'm completely confident that it will all come out. That is absolutely fantastic, and I'm just warning you in advance. I, I, I'm, I already sent a. Uh, I, I just while you were talking, I looked up a lab here in the city and going to type them up a little email once we're done, see if I can get a price list. I am dead curious. Yeah, where uh, Super Eight? Where are so, you? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm in Brooklyn as well. Oh, okay, you're in Brooklyn. What lab did you look up? Uh, well, I was going to look up Duart, but there's this other one, uh, Metropolis. Yeah, that's who did, that's who did my telecine. And oh, wow. Yeah, they'll do your processing too. They do like they do a lot of awesome sixteen stuff. They do all of like Alex Ross Perry stuff, and you know like Sean Price Williams. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, if you contact them, uh, there's a dude named Jack Rizzo there. He'll he'll help you out. That's fantastic. Oh god, yeah. I'm 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 forty something years old, and I'm going to be sh- and I'm going to shoot Super Eight this year. I, uh, you heard it here first, folks. It's going to get super weird in the Burger household. Um, so tell me, you didn't go to, uh, you didn't go to film school. What pushed, what, what kind of geared you towards film? What was your trajectory like? So like, I, you know, I grew up, you know, like I said, with, with seven siblings and I'm on the the bottom end of that. And, uh, one of my older brothers had, you know, like a cheap handy cam and he would make movies with his friends. He's, you know, eight years older than me (laughs) and I was around, I was a little kid. So he would just put me in those movies. Um, and at, for the longest time, when I was like in middle school, I thought maybe that I wanted to be an actor, but then I realized I was kind of more interested in just kind of like the creating aspect of it mm-hmm. and you know, telling stories. So I wasn't a great student because I didn't really care <laughs> in high school. So I didn't really have good grades. Uh, so like I applied for like, I'm from outside of Philly originally. So like I applied for like Temple and, and you know, schools like that. And I didn't get into any of those. So I went to a community college where I took some film classes 
And uh, I just kind of didn't like anyone that I was in the classes with. Uh, they were into stuff that I wasn't into and I wasn't really learning anything. Mm-hmm. So I kind of gave up on it and just did fine arts instead. But in the back of my head, like I, I couldn't stop thinking about movies that I wanted to make. And I was making little things on my own, just with like a shitty digital camera. And then one of my good friends went to NYU. I worked on some of his stuff. And I sort of decided kind of halfway through going to college for fine arts that I was going to complete that degree, but I wasn't ever going to use it. And that I was going to move to New York and work shitty jobs and try and get into the film industry. Because if I went with my plan B, that's what I would do forever. So I moved here. I worked at a cafe for like seven years, taking like little editing jobs here and there, and then eventually got enough work that I could kind of move into the industry uh, you know, just like commercial stuff, but then make enough money to kind of do, you know, my, my short films on the side. Excellent. Excellent. That's fantastic. It's funny that, 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 that's, there's a little bit of similarities that we have there. I too also went originally to a community college at first and specialized in fine art. Uh, and it's, I, I don't think I've ever talked to, you know, outside of the people that I knew from that school. I, I didn't know anybody else that, uh, that had that trajectory. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's like, there's similarities in those things, you know, like, I don't know. You have to like, think about what you're drawing and painting and there's like a story to it. I don't know. That's what one of the teachers told me there when I told him that that's what I was going to do. So. Well, there's composition to everything, you know, once yeah. you've learned composition, I mean, if you, you know, making composition on a rectangular piece of paper and, you know, also composing in a rectangular film frame are not entirely different. Right. Yeah, that's true. So uh, let's talk for a second about the Christmas light killer. Um, yeah. Because I turned this on and somewhere because, you know, true crime is such a prevalent force, especially in documentary these days. So I first, of course, see that uh, title and I'm like, please tell me there's a serial killer out there that kills people by strangling them with Christmas lights. Good right. news. There isn't. But you found somebody who's possibly just as murderous in his own regard tell me a little bit about like how you came upon this story so that guy is actually my best friend growing up in pennsylvania um we grew up making like little films together here and there and then you know i moved to new york and he stayed in my hometown and every time i would go home for the holidays i would come visit him at this light show he worked at like he works at this farm that kind of does like events so they also have like a haunted hayride that we would go to, you know, during like October. Mm-hmm. And we would just kind of like, I would just hang out there. He'd drive around, he'd turn off the lights and we'd have like a few drinks. And it was just kind of like this fun little tradition we had. And then I guess like on the third year, I just decided, I was like, I'm going to bring my camera and just shoot and, and see what happens. Like worst case, I don't get anything from this. Um, and it just happened that it was sort of like a, a bad day for him as far as like what was going on at the farm and dealing with customers and stuff. And we just ended up kind of, you know, having this like perfect moment where he was sort of like this grinchy kind of character. Um, and we just, I shot for two hours and I wasn't sure if I had anything and I threw it together in like, like five or six days and was just going to put it on the internet. And I contacted short of the week and I sent it to them. And they take like five days to, to get back to you is, is what it says when you submit. So I just wrote them another email and I was like, hey, I don't know when you guys are going to get to this, but I'm putting it online in four days on Christmas Eve. Right. Um, so that's that's my plan. Um, if you guys want to premiere it, I 
you know, and you can get to it before then. That's totally cool, but you know, no worries. And they got back to me, I think within like a few hours and they were like, we love this. We're, we're going to premiere it. Wonderful. Yeah. So is, 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 that seems to be a common theme with you is, is bringing stuff from your upbringing, your home and, and, and giving it new light and in a funny way, of course, using super eight millimeter kind of recalling, uh, you know, it's, original purpose which is of course you know family the first version of family home and videos like is this something that you can see yourself continuing to do just mining the resources of like your family and your earlier life and bring it out or is there other directions that you're hoping to bring this and go in you know i mean i i never really kind of wanted to make documentaries it just sort of if like a story presents itself in front of me and i'm like oh this could be a movie then i I'll, you know, decide whether it's worth it or not. And that's what sort of happened with Christmas Light Killer and, and sort of happened with, with Betty. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, Betty's all about my mom. So I sort of felt bad that I didn't have a movie about my dad. <laughs> so I remembered, you know, Deerwood's Death Trap, which is the one after that is all about the, my parents getting hit by a train in the 70s. And that was a story I grew up hearing my whole life told from my dad's perspective. So that's why I kind of decided like, all right, well, this is a cool story and I kind of need to make something for my dad. So that's how that ended up going. But uh, future wise, I'm, I'm trying to make a, a narrative feature right now that I'm hoping to make connections, you know, at Sundance to get in front of people that would be shot all on 16 millimeter. And it's like set in the early 80s, but, you know, feels like the late 70s. And it's kind of like a, a throwback to like a 70s movie kind of thing, like going after like the feel of like scarecrow or like badlands or something like that oh excellent excellent yeah, yeah. You, you you had me at uh at badlands you know you say you never found yourself attracted to documentary that was just stories that uh presented themselves if you could go back and talk to uh yourself what would be the advice that you'd give yourself given that uh given that piece of knowledge of you um you know the I don't really know how to answer that. Like the, the one thing that I kind of had to learn, uh, which is the thing I tried to remember whenever I'm making any of these things is to just make something that, that makes me happy. Um, but the first short I had made that super eight one called Cochrane that was released in 2009, like it, it got into like a bunch of festivals and, and I didn't even know, like when it got into South by Southwest, I didn't know that that was like a big deal. Like I was just like super green. Um, and after that got into a bunch of festivals, I kind of, I was sort of chasing that feeling of like making a movie that other people liked because that would like validate it or something. And I made a couple of shorts after that that weren't great. And I think it's because my priorities were wrong. Like I was looking to make other people happy as opposed to making myself happy. And then once I changed my thoughts on that, which is what I do now, uh, it's, I'd rather have something that that I like and never gets into a festival and nobody else likes than than have something that's in a bunch of festivals that I don't like and have to kind of fake like I'm proud of. So that's that's like the big thing that that I've learned that I try and remember all the time is just to make something that I like. And if you know if other people like it, that's cool. But if not, that's you know that's fine as long as I like it. Is there a moment kind of in that process where you feel the the most satisfaction from that, like? you know, like the first screening of, you know, or, or at a festival or maybe just screening, do you do a screen for friends? Like when's, when's the chance that you get to celebrate making that thing that you like so much? 
I don't know if I actually like kind of ever have that moment, to be honest. Like they're the the last three ones have all been those short docs that are, you know, about somebody that I'm close to in my life. So usually I kind of feel happy once those people that I've been making the documentary about see it and they're happy. Like my mom with with Betty Feeds the Animals, mm -hmm. you know, she doesn't my parents don't understand how any of this stuff's going to come together when I'm when I'm filming them. They're like so confused by what I'm doing and they're like I well why would you want me to answer this question or why would you want me to do that? And I'm like you'll you'll see when it all comes together in the end. And uh you know when I showed my mom Betty I uh I like showed it to her on an iPad, made her wear headphones, put her like in a separate room so there wasn't like a million distractions just cuz there there always is in my my crazy family. And uh you know, she sort of was like brought to tears by it, by a documentary about herself, um, which is sort of funny and weird, but like that, that made me feel happy. And like, my only goal with that was, and I told her this after she'd seen it is like, I, I just wanted to make a movie that if a 16 year old version of herself saw this film, she would be happy with the person she turned out to be. And like that, that's what I, that's what I did. Like she was, she was happy with it. And she, you know, when I told her that she was like, yes, I, I would be happy with who I am. Um, so it's sort of that kind of thing. Like it, it's more about if when, once the subjects are happy with the thing I've made, that's when I feel good about it. Yeah. That's so endearing. Jeez. <laughs> You're touching the cynical, cold, dead thing. I call a heart. <laughs> oh God. All right, couple of quick technical questions for you because I'm, I'm a nerd and I can't leave it alone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and especially, and I'm just going to warn anybody listening to this, like, I'm, I'm, I'd say I'm sorry, but it's my podcast and I'm drinking, so whatever. Uh, so you're shooting on Super 8 millimeter, and my film techno knowledge might be out of date a bit here, but the last time I checked, Super 8 doesn't sync well with uh, a lot of other audio recorders. Have you had troubles in post because oh, of that medium? Yeah, it doesn't sync at all. Uh, it's, it's like a complete nightmare. So for Betty Feeds the Animals, uh, I, try, I was slating at the beginning and the end of the role, or like that's, exact, that's what I was attempting to do, but a bunch of times I would just run out uh, because like I couldn't stop filming because she was doing something that was you know funny or, or just good for the take. Um, so when I brought it in later to try to sync that, cause I'm also running the digital camera at the same time that's running sound. And like, I'm intentionally making that digital camera, like, like a fucked up, uh, like angle. Like I was intentionally like dutching it constantly. So I wouldn't ever be tempted to use that instead of the super great. Um, you were so sabotaging one of your own camera angles. Yeah, I just, I wanted to take it out of the equation. Like, I just didn't want to use, I didn't want to be tempted to use the digital stuff. So, like, I would just, like, dutch the angle on purpose. So, there, there was no way I could use it and, and like, fall back on making, like, a, the film on digital instead of, you know, Super 8. That uh, might literally be one of the most hardcore filmmaking ethos I've ever heard. Yeah, I had this other camera angle, but I, I, I knew I wouldn't want to use it. So, I just made it at an angle that I knew that I never like. That's, that's... Bravo, sir. Bravo. I'm sorry. I interrupted. Please keep going. No, no, no. That's fine. Yeah, I was doing that or like making sure that when I framed it, that you could see like the boom mic, you know, in the shot. Um, so anyway, I when I went to sync that, it, of course, was not syncing up correctly. So what I had to do is I had to 
incrementally speed up the super eight footage to match the digital footage so that the sound would work. So like I was seriously like watching her and finding when she blinked and then finding that on the digital footage, making a marker and then like speeding up the super eight, just like ever so slightly to get those markers to match so that the audio would match. And you have to do that. Like, I mean, you, you look for some sort of visual cue to do it like a blink or, or somebody moving their hand in a certain way. But you have to do it kind of like every eight seconds. So it's like really painstaking and like infuriating. You're not sure if you're looking at the right blink that you're seeing on the digital footage for Super 8. It's really hard to do. Um, so that was my process with Betty Feeds the Animals. And I did not want to do that again. So I actually paid this guy in Connecticut to Crystal Sync, my old uh, Super 8 camera. Really? You didn't do that? Yeah. There's this guy. He's a, he has a website called The Film Group. And the website looks like it's from like 1995. It's, it's crazy. Like you would just think that there's no way anyone is still operating off of this website, but it's this guy in Connecticut and you send him your camera. He must only do like 10 or 15 of these a year because I can't imagine there's a huge demand, but yeah, he'll crystal sync your camera and send it back to you. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. Okay. Uh, that's, that's, that, that I'm, I'm looking that all sorts of up. Okay, so you shot digitally, not not in the, the case that we we're just talking about with Betty Feeds the Animal, but you shot digitally for the Christmas Light Killer, and right. I would imagine professionally you shoot digitally as well. Yeah. So, what changes about you and your decision making process between those two mediums? You know, it's the it's it's much more challenging shooting with Super Eight because you're just looking through that little eye hole. Um, and it's hard to know exactly what you're getting and it's hard to like, see, you know, what your, your depth of field is or any of that. Like it, it's, it's impossible to know kind of what's translating onto that footage. Um, so a lot of times I'm just kind of like unsure how good it's going to look like. I, I know that I know I'm going to like, like the green structure and, and the feel of the super eight, you know, all of that stuff. So I, I know inevitably, like, I know I'm going to be happy, but if I had some sort of like view assist, I actually tried to build all these view assists with like, uh, like security cameras and stuff. It just never kind of really worked out. Right. Um, but if I had that, I would do things like, you know, have the camera sliding or, or like on a gimbal. I actually did build, a, I did get the super eight camera on a gimbal, but it was just impossible to know what I was getting. Cause I couldn't look through the eye hole while like moving around with it. And I, some of that's in, deer woods when they're on the the tracks at the end and I'm like yes. following them but um yeah like decision making wise like I, I can't it's it's a different aesthetic of like beauty with the shots like you know I I can't get it to look like ultra produced and you know get like really like pretty sort of depth of field and stuff like that but it, it has its own it has its own kind of beauty and it and it's like simplicity and the way that it feels like nostalgic and just just film in general just kind of feels different, you know, like it feels special in this way. Um, just like I still shoot like 35 millimeter still film and, you know, it's always exciting sending that roll out and then getting it back and seeing what you got. And it, it's the same feeling with the super eight. Like it, I am nervous when I'm filming it. I don't know what things are going to look like and I can't wait to get it back. And I'm always happier than I thought I would be once I see it. Incredible. Just out of curiosity, do you uh, get also uh, get your 35 millimeter still work processed here in the city as well? 
I do. There's like a, there's a little place in Greenpoint called Kubis. Do you know about this place? Hmm. No, like, I, I ask, I, I, I do that as well. I use a uh, Gowanus dark room, but I'm always curious about other labs. Okay. Yeah. There's a place in Greenpoint called Kubis and uh, it's like this old, like Polish place. And they just play uh, like joke DVDs, like from like England from like the mid nineties on this giant TV the whole time. It's like the weirdest vibe. And uh, it's just four dollars to get your film developed, and then I have a I have a Pacon scanner that I run like Windows ninety five to to scan all of my my thirty five millimeter stills. Okay, there was just so much retro information that you just dropped there. <laughs> I need I need like a moment to process and remember nineteen ninety five brain. Okay, hold on, I'm dialing up on AOL right now. Okay, uh, that's fantastic. Like. Do you see, like you mentioned before about like a resurgence of Super 8, do you see these analog formats coming back as generations of filmmakers are now coming up almost used to everything that uh, was accomplished uh, once DSLRs hit? I, You know, I don't know. I know 16 is like kind of crazy right now. Like uh, I know Kodak is like running out of 16 millimeter film. So many people are buying it and shooting with it. You're joking uh, me. No, I, I'm friends with like a bunch of, you know, like filmmakers who shoot on 16 and they were having issues getting it because everybody was shooting on it. Uh, and this was like, like three months ago, they were telling me about it. Um, so I, I do think 16 is making a huge comeback. I can't imagine anybody shooting features on, on Super 8 just because it's, it's such like a, a, a very difficult thing to do. Um, but yeah, I think 16 is going to come back. I actually think 35 is going to come back. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, obviously still like some big movies shoot on it, but I think it's going to come back like in the, the indie world. Like those cameras are really cheap to buy right now. They're kind of like as cheap as 16 millimeter cameras were like eight years ago. And now 16 millimeter cameras are like 20 grand. Um, and I just sort of feel like that's what's going to happen with 35. I think people are going to start shooting like two perf, just like 16, and that those cameras are going to start going for like a lot of money. They don't make new ones anymore. Um, Kodak was making a Super 8 camera. They uh, they had a prototype like you can you can check it out. It's it's on their website, but they still haven't released it. They've been working on it for like seven years at this point. Uh, and I just think like the demand probably isn't there. But if they ever put that out, it has like an LCD screen that flips out and it's crystal synced and everything. It looks amazing. You know, I couldn't help myself. As soon as you said that, I decided to look up what a 35 millimeter Aeroflex would go for on eBay right now. And I'm shocked. Mm -hmm. I am shocked. I got an Aeroflex 2C here for 5,500. That's crazy. That's, oh, I got to hide my credit cards right now. Oh, that's, I don't even shoot 35 millimeter, but I would just fulfill 16 year old Jeremy Berger's dreams right there, having a, a 35 millimeter double perf in here. Whoo. By the way, is anybody listening to this sick of all the film nerd talk yet? Because we, we're, 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 we're still going strong. Um, what I'm curious about, especially seeing 35 millimeter, as you're saying, 35 millimeter coming back to the indie, and I know that 35 millimeter still film has been uh, gaining a lot of traction in recent years. Yeah. But is there a point where we follow that track pack uh, far enough? And what I mean by that is, like, are we going to be taking a look at people who are just straight up not going to release their films online or for streaming at all? and just leave it to like event-based things? And do you feel like that 
screening possibility of being with other people, watching something that you can only watch in that place and time with the people around you is something that's reinforced by uh, the recent pandemic? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I actually, I don't really know if it's going to work, you know, backlash that way. I mean, I think there's always going to be people who, you know, love that feeling of going to the movies and sitting in a theater and experiencing it that way. And, you know, like I, I love that. And it's, it's actually not even about being in a theater with other people. Like, you know, the times I show up at a, at a movie and there's no one else there, it's kind of like the best ever. Like I don't have to worry about anyone talking or, or being on their phones or anything like that. Um, I, I hope that it kind of, there's a resurgence where people care about going to the movies like that, like they used to. Um, it's just kind of hard to know with people on their phones and stuff. Like, I, I just feel like the, the specialness of like sitting down and watching a movie and not getting distracted by anything. I, I, I don't want to sound like an old man, but like, I don't feel like I see people as committed to, putting themselves in that situation where they can't have any distractions as they used to be, you know, like that used to be like a thing, you know, you, you don't have a phone, you sit there, you can't do anything. You're watching this movie, anything that happens in the outside world, it doesn't matter until that movie's over, but I don't really see people kind of experiencing movies like that right now, as much as I would like them to. I don't, I don't know if that answers your question. It does. It does. I, I also asked you a huge question about whether or not the world's changing. So any answer kind of works because, you know, it's not like we have a chance to judge it. Uh, you know, I'll, I will know the answer to that. And I don't know, 10, 12 years. Well, that, then we'll figure it out. Um, right. If anybody wants to get started in film, are there resources that you'd recommend? Uh, as far as like, sh like shooting film, do you mean? Or yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Shooting film. Uh. Oof. I don't know, really, like, to be honest, like the Super 8 stuff, it just sort of, I, I had friends who had done it, so I had them as guidance. Um, I didn't really know of like any online sort of like tutorials or like, you know, anything that you could watch that would kind of help you do it. It was just sort of like trial and error. And that's not an easy thing to do when it costs so much money to test those things out. You know, like $60 for a roll is expensive. And not only that, like you have to go through all the, the hoops of getting it developed and then getting it transferred and, you know, all those things. So I can't think, I, and I also haven't looked, but I can't think of like a, a resource that would really help out with learning how to shoot that way besides just like the experience of doing it and connecting to people who are actively doing it and watching them and learning. And would that be your advice to those people personally speaking? I guess. I mean, I don't think I'm really good at uh, handing out advice, but that's, I mean, that's what I would do. I mean, that's kind of what happened with me. Uh, and I just happened to be lucky enough to be around people who were doing it. So I, I could experience it, you know, hands-on. Make sure to check out drinkingwithcreatives.com where you can support us by contributing to our Patreon. And don't forget to subscribe and download on your preferred platform. I hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you next time.